In 1977, I wrote a short story called The Intensive Care Unit about a world where people never meet. Marriage is conducted hundreds of miles apart, and in my story I visualize a man who actually decides to meet his wife and children in the flesh. Of course it's a disaster. They just cannot bear the sensory overload. On a mere neurological level, they can't bear to be together, rather in the way that we can't bear to be too close to strangers. So I can believe that in the future people won't be able to bear to be in the same room as others, or even on the same street. Of course it's very difficult to read these kinds of aspects of the future. I live the sunshine, I love the sunshine. Some days I wake up and it's only been an hour since I went to sleep and I sort of feel a little wobbly and I feel a little uneasy and uncomfortable and that sun is just pouring in my windows because I don't have curtains in the house where I live and it's just beating on my eyelids, something terrible. And I think, if it weren't for sunshine, we wouldn't be able to survive on this planet. So I roll over, and I put my face in the pillow, and I pray that I'll suffocate and die right there. But then I start to feel the sweat trickling down my butt crack, 
and I realize that the sun is beating my ass right then and there. And I know I have to make friends with the sunshine, because I love the sunshine.
To be cultural, to have a culture, is to inhabit a place sufficiently intensely to cultivate it, to be responsible for it, to respond to it, to attend to it caringly. Where else but in particular places can culture take root? Certainly not in the thin air above these places, much less in the even thinner air of pure speculation about them. To be located, culture also has to be embodied. Culture is carried into places by bodies. To be encultured is to be embodied to begin with. This is the common lesson of Merleau-Ponty and of Bourdieu, both of whom insist in the capital importance of the customary body, the body that has incorporated cultural patterns into its basic actions. These actions depend on habitus, history turned into nature, a second nature that brings culture to bear in its very movements. Moreover, just as the body is basic to enculturation, so the body is itself always already enculturated. Rather than being a passive recipient or mere vehicle of cultural enactments, the body is itself inactive of cultural practices by virtue of its considerable powers of incorporation, habituation and expression. And as a creature of habitus, the same body necessarily inhabits places that are themselves culturally informed. It also inhabits places by rising to the challenge of the novel circumstance. Far from being dumb or diffuse, the lived body is as intelligent about the cultural specificities of a place as it is aesthesiologically sensitive to the perceptual particularities of that same place. Such a body is at once encultured and emplaced, and enculturating and emplacing, while being massively sentient all the while. Basic to local knowledge is knowledge of place by means of the body. Such knowledge is knowledge by acquaintance, in Roussel's memorable phrase. Bodies not only perceive but know places. Perceiving bodies are knowing bodies, and inseparable from what they know is culture as it imbues and shapes particular places. It is by bodies that places become cultural in character. Culture pervades the way that places are perceived and the fact that they are perceived, as well as how we act in their midst. As Merleau-Ponty puts it, the distinction between the two planes, natural and cultural, is abstract. Everything is cultural in us, and everything is natural in us.
we should not waste too much time by dreaming or envisioning a site and situation outside the current macro-level system, representational democracy, and its internal paradoxes. We do not need less or more, but better government that really governs instead of pretending to be doing commerce. The hope that it is to be achieved, created and kept on keeping on, that hope is always only possible at the micro level. We must play and take part, but the whole issue comes down to what kind of games we do in fact play and why and how much we can modify, alter and affect them. What is absolutely and positively certain that it is a game that it is and has to be local. It is temporal, it is amazingly fragile, but it is there and it is here. You feel the pull of gravity, not pulling things apart, but bringing things together. It is what I have articulated and addressed as the acts of a politics of small gestures. It is the difference between being an actor or a spectator. It is a difference that it is localized in choosing whether you are satisfied and ready just to dress up for it or to stay with it and get into the acts of really playing the part. It is not in the air we breathe, it is not in the water we drink, and it is not wrapped up in the loud and shiny spectacles that we follow. It is somewhere else, somewhere where the acts and actions defy the deterministic logic of a price tag, and where the acts are supported by their slow accumulation of inherent pleasures. In short, the alternative is to refuse to simplify and to flatten anything and everything into the logic of speed, volume and price. Obviously enough, that is business as usual and that is just very fine so. But if we want participatory practice and the internal goods potentially embedded in it, we need checks and we need balances. We need accountability. These are acts that are not outside of our life worlds, but very clearly within them. They need to be acknowledged, acted upon, and brought further inside. They need to be respected and cherished beside, beneath and beyond. Because, well, because otherwise these one-directional values turn all of us into buy, play and throw away objects that are not, let me repeat, that are not to be desired. The alternative way is the interconnected and committed long-term acts of doing everything that is in our reach and in our power in our daily realities to avoid being treated and treating others as objects. It is a question of ends, not of means.
in your home alone, take a bucket or basin of room temperature water to your front door and strip naked. Put a piece of paper or thin notepad under the bucket and lay a pen nearby. Stand in the water. Get used to being naked while standing in water at the front door. Look through the peephole. Look for a long time at the world out there. Then look above you and at the door, the walls and make note of something you haven't seen before. Maybe a cobweb or a crack in the paint. Every once in a while stretch your arms over your head. Stretch as high as you can. Stretch, stretch, stretch then relax in your bucket. If someone knocks or rings the bell, it's your good fortune. Look at them through the peephole while saying nothing. Maybe have a friend come over at a certain time to knock and say, Are you naked in your bucket of water? Don't answer. You're a poet. This isn't time for idle shit chat. Besides that you can warn them ahead of time that you won't be answering. Stretch and be quiet. Step out of the bucket and sit your poet ass on the floor. Get the paper from under the bucket and whistle short loud bursts of whistle four times. Then write. When you feel the need for more whistles, pause, whistle, then write some more. Find a small tree. Prepare the ground with blankets for you and your partner on either side of the tree. Get undressed. Completely. Get on your blanket, your partner facing you. Have the flats of your feet pressed together, the tree in between your pairs of legs. Both of you rest on your backs and press your feet. Press them with legs raised, then lowered. For a little while, work together in this meditation of pressing and moving legs and feet with the tree quietly growing between them. Take notes about how you're feeling. Make it clear ahead of time that he or she working with you is free to do, say, sing whatever they want, as long as you keep the bottoms of your feet connected around the tree. My boyfriend Rich did this with me, singing, humming and finally masturbating, sitting up and smearing his semen on the bark. His orgasm pushed our feet together at a critical moment of note-taking for me. Good for my note-taking. Let this somatic exercise have as much freedom for the two of you as possible, the frequency given and taken and shared with the tree between you, a living antenna between you, pulling nutrients from the earth and sun rays. The tree between us is where the notes come most clearly for me. Whatever you do, please do not give any additional instructions to your partner. Let them do exactly what they want to do once you're both on the ground naked together with the tree between you.
their freedom to express themselves depends upon this poem as much as your feet pressing together around a tree. But take notes, take many, many notes.
To the classical music aficionado and the traditional philosopher of music, the musical practices of versioning, dubbing and remixing may appear exotic and exceptional. My contention, however, is that it is but a contemporary instance of the age-old practice of music making, a practice obscured by a focus on the classical aesthetic. From Homer through John Coltrane, Grandmaster Flash and Oval, music has always been a matter of transformative performance, of reinterpreting texts that are themselves interpretations. Theodore Adorno and Jacques Attali argued that musical recording reifies and commodifies music to an even greater degree than does the classical score. Yet, sampling and remix practice demonstrate the contrary, that recording makes possible a new kind of musical practice, a new musica practica, that anyone with rudimentary playback technology can engage in. Indeed, as Chris Cutler and Mark Poster have argued, art in the digital age recapitulates, albeit via different technology, the folk mode of production exemplified by oral poetry with its focus on performance and continual transformation of inherited, all but anonymous, public texts. If this is what music is and means, then philosophers of music have been asking the wrong questions about music and coming to the wrong conclusions about it. At best, they have been philosophers of classical music who have taken the exception to be the rule. Thank you.
of music by Pi Corner Audio, Institute for Fine Motoric, Iso, Kurt Dutta, Pantychrist, Nicolas Gonin, Charles Cohen, Van der Group, Milos Pekala, Kordilazinska Pekala and Azuna Arashi, Thomas Brinkman, Sandro Musiba, Jake Majinski, Tom Rakion, Patrick Colley, Mary Latimore and Vladislav Delay. Readings of texts by James Graham Ballard, Edward Casey, Mika Anula, C. Conrad, and Christoph Cox.